Revelation is not a particularly easy book. Uh, not only is it written in language that we find difficult to uh, understand because it's not a language that we're particularly familiar with apart from certain parts of the Bible, but it also deals with some quite hard things. And we're getting into the hard parts of Revelation. We've had kind of the easy bits with the opening vision of Christ and the letters to the churches. And then the last two weeks we've had a look at what is really the heart, if you like, the centre of Revelation, what it really is like in this heavenly sphere. And from now on, it's going to get a lot harder, I think, to understand. I've spoken to a few people over the last few weeks who've said, oh, I never read Revelation, I don't like it. I find it too hard. Or or they say it's really confusing when so many people are talking about it now in ways that don't make sense to me. So I want to encourage us as we look at this um, and start getting into this chapter and the ones following it to remember that John was writing to give hope in the midst of suffering. He was writing to a, a church who were facing hard times and his purpose in writing was to shake them out of any complacency, to urge them not to compromise with the culture of the time and we've seen those in the letters to the churches but Above all, he wanted them to remain faithful to Christ, to have patient endurance, or if you like, loyalty in suffering, because the word patience means suffering. He set us up to to look at what the world is really like, to kind of, if you like, give us a, a glimpse behind the scenes of the cosmic conflict that we are part of. He set us up by showing Christ's intimate care for us in those letters to the churches, and then showing the ultimate reality, what it's like in heaven, where the four living creatures and the elders continuously worship. And we've sung today one of the worship songs that comes not from those chapters, but from the next chapter. Salvation belongs to our God. I'm not sure how many of uh, us realise that quite a few of our Amazing hymns of praise and glory come from Revelation. It's a book that bursts full with worship, and it's one of its um, jobs is to bring us to worship. And I read some um, interesting descriptions of worship uh, in one of the texts that I looked at, one of the commentaries. Worship is the expression of agreement by the people of God about the truth of God. But also it's the settled attitude of heart and mind towards the true source of power, the true source of peace, the true source of truth, and the true source of reality in life. And that worship plays out for the whole of life in every situation. And it's every situation which John is now telling us about. He's telling us about the depth of what is wrong with the world that we live in, the depths to which sin has affected our world. We saw in chapter 5 that there was a scroll and it was written on both sides, densely written, and it contains the purposes of God for his earth. And the whole of the Bible shows us that the purposes of God is to bring restoration and to bring wholeness and to bring us back into relationship with him and to bring healing to the earth. But we can't we cannot understand the magnitude of what those purposes are for unless we understand the magnitude of the problem. 
And the scroll has seven seals. When I was younger, I kind of imagined that each time he took off a seal, we were hearing part of the scroll. But in fact, the scroll would have been a roll of papyrus, and the seals would have been placed along it. We cannot hear what's in the scroll until all the seals come off it. So in that context, I think that this chapter is telling us about... Is that better, Ted? Good. That this chapter is telling us about what is wrong with the world. And when we really know what that is, we can really appreciate the healing and the salvation that God is bringing. So that there are a couple of other things I wanted to remind us of. Um, when we think about reading a book that's highly, written in highly symbolic language. The first thing I wanted to say that from chapter four to the end of the book is essentially a unity. It's a one vision that's broken up into parts. It's not linear in time, so it's not that we get what happens in chapter six and then next in time comes what happens in chapter eight when the trumpets and so on and so forth. It's John showing us what the world is really like and then showing us what God's, how God's purposes have unfolded and are continuing to unfold. And so he shows us what the world is like and then he turns the picture a little bit and shows us a particular angle of it and then turns the picture again and shows us another angle of it, of it till we get to the final bit where he, we see the final victory of God and the completion of the victory that has already been won. Symbols within this vision have a unity, but they can also mean more than one thing. It's also not always possible to work out what all the symbols mean, and what is important is the overall picture, the big picture. And sometimes it's overwhelming what we read. Um, when the seventh seal is open, which we didn't hear about today, that's in chapter eight, there was silence in heaven for half an hour, and sometimes silence is the right response to some of the powerful imagery that we read in Revelation. Sometimes the only response really is to ponder and pray and to let the imagery stir up our imagination and gird our loins so that we too can participate in the patient endurance. So we have today's reading which has very famous images that it starts with, which is the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now I remind you that the word apocalypse is the same word as revelation, so we could equally call them the four horsemen of the revelation. And I'm going to tell you another one of my misconceptions from when I was younger, which was that I always imagined that because they were called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, was that what they were bringing about was the apocalypse. But this is not about the end of the world, this particular chapter. When I looked at the apocalyptic chapters in Matthew and in Mark, Jesus talks about there'll be wars and rumours of wars and plagues, and these are the beginnings of the birth pangs. These are not the end. I think it's important that we remember that this is about what 
history is like. As uh, one commentator said, history is all about war. And that's certainly my experience at school. When we did history, we looked at the conflict in Israel, we looked at the conflict in Ireland, we looked at the conflict in South Africa. Those were the things I learned about in fifth form history. History is about war. So we see the first horseman ride out, and he's on a white horse. Now white is a symbol of victory. And he is a conqueror, and he comes armed with a bow. Now, the original hearers of this letter, they were living under the Roman Empire. They were very familiar with conquerors. Let's just remember that they were in Asia Minor. They weren't actually part of Rome. They were a conquered territory. But also Rome had enemies, and one of its major enemies lived to the east, which would have been relatively close to Asia Minor, and they were the Parthians. And they came on horses, and they were armed with bows. So this is a very um, resonant image for the original hearers of the fact that life is full of the th war and the threat of war, of people coming to conquer, of people who aren't content with what they have, but seek to have more. There's another rider on a white horse later in Revelation in chapter 19, and that rider has holy and true and king of kings written on him, and he comes armed not with a bow, but with a sword that comes out of his mouth. That is the true conqueror, the one who has conquered death, and he conquers not through the sword. Literally, he conquers through the word of God, which is the sword that comes out of his mouth. And he conquers by being slain. The true conqueror of this earth is the lion who is also the lamb, the lamb who was slaughtered. And so when we read this about the, the rider on the white horse, it's tempting to think of this rider as Christ, and some commentators do. But I think that he's on a white horse so that we can compare and contrast with the true conqueror who comes later in the book, also on a white horse. And this first rider is followed very quickly by the rider on the red horse. And this rider has the sword. And this rider represents war. War seems very far away from us, mostly. Maybe not quite so far away, given the current events in Wellington and some of the virulence of some of the rhetoric that is being employed by people who are having that particular argument. But there's a sense in which all of life is war, in that we are all set up to compete with one another. And the end point of that competition is war. When Jesus comes, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. And we are asked to not put ourselves above other people, we asked to follow Jesus who did not consider himself um, but emptied himself out and did not hold on to the glory that was his as God's son, as, as part of the Godhead, but came and served a life of service. It's in direct contrast to war, which is all about, you've got what I want, I'm going to get it. And it doesn't matter to me if you stand in my way or not, because if you do... I've got a sword, or a gun, or any other weapon. 
And I'm also reminded of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, where he he said, you know, if you look at your brother with murder in your heart, it's as if you had murdered him. So whilst war might seem far away from us, the rest of the Bible teaches us to think about war as a bit more closer to our sinful nature and asks us to put it to one side. And then with the third seal, we see the black horse come out. And this is the horse of famine. Now, I would remind you that this isn't a sequence in that these things is what we see in history. These things are intermingled, but when you're writing a narrative, one thing has to come after the other. So the third horse that comes out is the black horse. And this is famine. You know, a day's wages for a meagre amount of wheat or barley, the staples of life. And isn't this also true of all of history, that there is poverty wherever we look? But even whilst there's poverty, there's people who can still afford the luxuries of wine and olive oil. It astounds me sometimes when I think of what people are prepared to spend their money on millions and millions of dollars for a painting when there are millions of millions of people in poverty. God made a planet that was fruitful and is a good place to live and has plenty for all. But in our greed, in our pursuit of a higher standard of living, we let some fall by the wayside as, a, as part of the cost of achieving that. And again, this has a message for us, even though we don't live in a time of famine, although sometimes over the last couple of years when you've gone to the supermarket and the shelves have been empty, we've perhaps had a glimpse of what that might be like. But we do have poverty in this country. And when I was working, I would see the impact of that poverty on the children that I saw. We have poverty in our country. And I believe a part of our call as Christians is to work against such evils as poverty. When he ripped off the fourth seal, the fourth animal came out, and this was the colourless horse, or the pale green horse, sickly. It's rider with death. And death is the last enemy. And he, he was given the power to destroy a fourth of the earth by war, famine, disease, and wild beasts. I'm going to come back to the limitation a bit later. Death is the final enemy. We all die. We all have to grapple with our mortality. But what we are promised as Christians, is that death has lost its sting. When we read Revelation, we read it not as some apocalypses, pre-Christian apocalypses were written, where we suffer and we die, but after we're dead, righteousness will come and everything will be justified and vindicated. As Christians, we read it knowing that death has been conquered, that Jesus rose from the grave, So even though the black horse comes out and has power over us, that is not the final power. The final victory belongs with Jesus. 
When he ripped off the fifth seal, our focus changes. And this is a pattern that we'll see as we read through some of the other visions of pattern of four and then three. So we've had the four horsemen, and now we get the three next seals, which are of quite a different character. The fifth seal narrows our focus from the widespread evils of the world to the evil of persecution because of faith. And he sees, John sees, the souls safe under the altar. But these are the souls who've been killed because of their witness to the word. They have a white robe. They have victory. And they cry out, how long? This is a, one of the hard things, I find, amongst many hard things in this passage, is that it doesn't actually sound very Christian when you think about it. We were taught to have forgiveness. We are taught to be loving. And what they say is, how long before you step in and avenge our murders? How will we understand this? You know, we heard in our call to worship that God is great, is goodness and loving mercy and slow to become angry and has compassion on all that he has made. And yet we hear this cry, when are you going to come out and avenge us? I think it's helpful to think of this not so much as a, a call for punishment or revenge, but as a call for justice to be done. You know, the cry, how long, is quite common in the Old Testament and in, I can't think of a place in the New, but where people cry out, how long, Lord? How long before you come? How long must we sit by the rivers of Babylon? How long before you make things right? And this is what this cry is about. How long before you bring justice? And part of justice is actually dealing with the wrongs that have been inflicted. So this is a cry for justice, for vindication. And they are told to sit back and wait because the time is not yet complete. We'll park that thought for a minute as well. And then we've got the sixth seal. The bone jarring earthquake quake, the sun turned black, the stars falling. Now these, you're going to tell me, surely these are images of the end of the world. In one sense, they are. But in another sense, I think, and this is one of the places where I think you can read more than one reading into to some of the bits and just sit with the ramifications of the different images. In one sense, they're about natural disaster. And in another sense, these are the types of things that we, language like this was used to describe really significant earth-shattering, world-shattering events. So the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 17, for example, imagery like this would have been appropriate to talk about that. Um, the Twin Towers happening. This kind of imagery would be appropriate for that kind of event. So this... This particular seal, I think, is about showing that there are events outside of the control of any human. So if we think about earthquakes and tsunamis, these are things that, against which we don't have any power. And so we see the kings, the princes, the generals, the rich and strong, the people who think, I've got the world in my grasp, 
things are going to go my way because I'm the person with the power. They come up against the reality that actually their power is quite limited. They, along with everybody else, cannot stand against these things, that there is an ultimate reality against which they have to look and see where they stand. And these folk don't stand, they hide in the mountains of the rocks, hide us from the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So that's a quick survey of what's going on here a little bit. But I wanted to talk about some of the hard things in this passage. The first is that it really does show us the depths of evil. But God permits it. It's kind of one of the, the, the hardest questions that we have to deal with as Christians. Why doesn't God do something about the evil that we see rampant? We see in this that the seals are broken and the living creatures say come and the horses come in response to that. God is permitting it. One of the books I read commented that we asked, well, why doesn't God step in and stop a Hitler or stop a Stalin? But we very rarely ask the question, why doesn't God step in and stop me thinking evil thoughts about my neighbour? Or stop me when I speed? Or run a red traffic light? There are many ways to grapple with a framework for understanding evil, and part of which is that we live in a fallen world, but God has decided to wait before he steps in finally, because stepping in finally brings a new heaven and a new earth. It brings the end to all choices. And so God has given us more time, a little longer yet, before he brings his final restoration and his final justice. I still don't think it makes it particularly easy uh, to understand the evil in the world. And I still think it's the hardest question to answer. Why does God permit these things? But I think what one of the things that we know as Christians is that God stands with us. He doesn't sit far away. His son came and his son walked and talked on this earth and suffered the same evils the same vicissitudes of life that we do, the same difficulties. God is with us in our suffering, and God has a plan to deal with it, and he's already dealt with the evil, but we're in that time between the already, it's all been vanquished in death, in Christ's death and resurrection, but the not yet, the completion of the kingdom hasn't come. And the other aspect I think that this tells us is that whilst evil is allowed to continue because the time is not yet to bring it to an end, its, it's reign is not complete. The horsemen are given the power to destroy only a fourth of the earth. God is still in control. That's the other message of this passage. This, even though it is allowed to be, God is still in control. And I think the same thing pertains to how long till you bring justice to us. They were told to wait until 
the number of martyrs was filled. The number of martyrs will be filled when Jesus comes again, when the end of all time comes, when the new heaven and the new earth come. And this is something that we see echoed in other parts of the Old Testament as well. So, again, these, these are passages that we find very difficult to read, but when the Amorites in, um, I'm going to forget which book, um, they were allowed to continue in their evil ways because their evil was not yet complete and the time was not yet ready for the Israelites to go out and conquer them. So we see this idea that God lets things run to their fruition until things are complete before he steps in and acts. But I think the other thing that's really challenging for us when we read about the martyrs, when we read other images of the church through Revelation, they're all wearing white robes. There's a sense in which we too are called to be martyrs. And martyrs in the sense that we're called to be faithful and true to the witness to Jesus. We're very lucky we don't live in a country where we're likely to be killed because of our faith. And there are many Christians around the world who do live under regimes where to choose to be a Christian is to choose the chance of dying for your belief in Jesus. But we are called to die to ourselves and we are called to stand up against those things in culture and society that do not fit with the way that we're called to live. We're called out of that complacency, agreeing with culture. We're called out of um, compromise with culture. And in that sense, we, we need to be faithful and true even unto the point of death, even if, and I'm drawing a bit of a long bow here, but even if that is in the context of dying to ourselves. So the final thing that I find really difficult about this passage is this idea of judgment. And I've been talking a bit about judgment as we've come through this, but we see it most particularly in the sixth seal. And what are those people saying? They're saying, hide us from the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Have you ever thought what an unusual image that is? How can the Lamb be angry? And this goes counter to our images of Jesus, Jesus meek and mild, Jesus who loved us, and God who loved us also, that he gave his son for us. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about how God loves us and how he wants us to respond to him in love. And so we find it very hard to think about judgment. And yet Jesus does talk about judgment. He says, those who are not for me are against me. And it's many ways that, um, in many ways, when I think about judgment, I think this is about the choices that we make as to who we think Jesus is and how we respond to Jesus. Rather than God actively judging us, he gives us a chance to respond to the love that he's shown. And if we don't respond to that love, in a sense, that's the judgment that we've called down upon ourselves. I found this quotation very helpful when I was thinking about this. The creator God, the God we know in and through Jesus, is calling the world to account. They are wrong to imagine him as a capricious or vengeful tyrant. 
God is indeed angry at everything that has so horribly spoiled his wonderful world. His gaze from the throne is a deep, inexpressible mixture of sorrow and anger. But the Lamb's anger is the utter rejection by love incarnate of all that is unloving. I'll read that sentence again. The Lamb's anger is the utter rejection by love incarnate of all that is unloving. The only people who should be afraid of it are those who are determined to resist the call of love. When I was talking to uh, somebody about preaching on this and the challenges on it, they told me, well, just be sure to leave us with something of hope. And I think it's important when we, when we hear that that the only people who need to be afraid of the wrath of the Lamb are those who reject, who the call to be, you know, who, who aren't responding to that call of love, who reject everything that is loving. That's the hope that I have. I have the hope that as we read this, we will indeed have hope in the midst of our suffering, as, as this series is entitled Eternal Hope, that we'll be people of hope and people of love and people of peace and people who have compassion for those around us, that we will show what it is to be like Christ in the midst of our society, a society at the moment that is quite divided and that is suffering, that we can be that light and that we will take courage from the knowledge that the lamb, the slaughtered lamb, is also the lion, that the slaughtered lamb is also the conqueror of death, and of evil, and that is the one in whom we have our faith and our being. And I pray that we will be a people who stand in that hope and stand in that faith and stand in that love. Amen.